If you have a Bible, if you would turn to the book of Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, we will be finishing the book today in this series that has been entitled New Beginnings. We have been plugging through this book for the past several weeks, and this New Beginnings Together has been the banner over this entire book. And as you recall, the new beginning for the people of Israel was centered around a physical project, that is the building of a wall, but it was far more than that. It was about the rebuilding of a people, a spiritual people that were meant to be characterized, and let's recall these things because this is the parallel to us, a spiritual people meant to be characterized by God-soakedness, prayer, Confidence in God's word, repentance and confession, trusting Christ together so that we risk together, building one another up together and linking arms in love, committed to generous obedience and being on God's mission. These are the things that Nehemiah and the people of Israel were working towards so that they might be a spiritual people, holy unto God. And so... As we look here, we're going to look at chapters 11 through 13 to finish this uh, time, and we will get through all three chapters today, um, but as you guys are, are clicking there or flipping there, just know that next week, uh, Ron Jure will be preaching outdoors, 1030 here um, on this side yard, Lord willing, uh, weather permitting, and then after that, the following week, May the 2nd, we will start our series in the book of Romans, the series entitled, For the Love of God. And so hopefully we will enjoy this series uh, in the book of Romans. Next week, after our service, we will have a spend time with the pastoral candidates time. So those of you who want to stay and uh, talk and just get to know them, we'll have this time afterwards. Uh, just make sure you RSVP to a survey that will go out this week so that you make sure uh, that you get enough food. And we have enough food for you. Then May 9th, Mother's Day. Don't forget it. Put it down. Please, right now, okay, don't forget. And then May 23rd, we have our next family meeting uh, to talk a little bit more about the future direction of TCC. So I want to read uh, just a couple of verses, Nehemiah 12, 27, and Nehemiah 12, 43, then I'll pray and we dive in. The Word of God says this, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places, to bring them to Jerusalem, to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And now, verse 43 of chapter 12. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Let's pray. Father, take your word that is so precious and hide your word deep within our hearts so that any pride and rebellion would be ripped away and the flood of your Holy Spirit would well up within our hearts to give us comfort and peace and joy like is being talked about here so that our city and way beyond that our neighbors will hear of the joy that we have 
in Christ. So help us, I pray. We ask for your mercy now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many of you have heard the phrase, time flies when you're having fun? That's right. Time flies when you're having fun. So what that usually means is you got so engrossed in something that you love doing, all of a sudden hours have passed by. You can experience when you're reading a book. You can experience sometimes when you're watching a movie. You can experience sometimes when you're playing sports. Time flies when you're having fun. There's another phrase that has to do with time, and it's not as common, but it is said. Time is not always your friend. Time is not always your friend. Now, if someone's getting overwhelmed, like with a project or something, and let's say they got three months to get it done, you actually might say the opposite. It might take them only one month to get it done, but they've got three months, so you might comfort them in their anxiety with, time's your friend, right? Time's your friend. It's, it's on your side. It's alongside you. Those who are older, they have experienced that time is their friend in the sense that they have grown wiser. They have experienced life. They can speak wisdom into those who haven't experienced as much life. But I think old saints in this church would say, time is not always your friend. Time has made my body hurt and given me less energy. And my reflexes are not as sharp as they used to be. So time is not always their friend. I think there's a phrase as well that goes with this. And I think it's what Nehemiah is speaking to. Not only is he speaking to time is not always your friend, he's also speaking to ease is not always your friend. Ease is not always your friend. Don't get me wrong. Ease is great at times, right? Suffering and pain are not acute. Maybe decision-making is not as difficult. Financial struggles are less. Relationships are not as tense. How many of us would want that? Yes, okay. Ease in that point is our friend. But something else happens with ease over time. Complacency, spiritual indifference, self-sufficiency, and before you know it, ease has led our life of spiritual sharpness over the hill into spiritual indifference and down a slope towards disobedience into a life of destruction, and many times we've barely even perceived it. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah, one book in the Hebrew scriptures, comes to a close. And this is the lesson we are left with. That over time, in a season of ease, we can grow unfocused, undisciplined, and spiritually lazy. In seasons of ease, we can go self-sufficient and less mindful of God and his ways self-dependent not god dependent and we've all been guilty i raise my hand we've all been guilty and some of us might be guilty right now some of us might be on the cusp of it and the prayer is that as we read the scriptures god would awaken us to any spiritual apathy that might be seeping in and so i titled today don't relax rest together <laughs> don't relax just rest together this is something that we need together that is don't relax spiritually 
but rest in Christ together. There's a difference that God wants us to see as we finish this book. Don't relax, but rest together. And so as the story of Nehemiah comes to an end, the people of God have been taught his word. And through that understanding, they have come to a spot of confessing their sins and prayer and a commitment to God that they're going to obey him with all their heart. And so what happens is Nehemiah sees the reason he set out as being accomplished right before his eyes. A spiritual people have been developed, not only a physical wall. And so now they gather together. It's a real people committed to following all of God's law, the law made to Moses. And this is what we read, Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 and 29 from last week. This is where we read the people of God committing to the law of God. It says this in verse 28, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. So the point here is clearly the people of God have not only built a wall, but they have been rebuilt by the Spirit of God through the leadership of Nehemiah to be all on board with God and His ways. That they might stand out as a, as like a, this light that shines to the nations by gathering in Jerusalem. But now what we read in chapter 11 is there's a registration of the families that have come from Babylon. And what was revealed was that there wasn't enough people that had dwelt in the city of Jerusalem. They came, helped build the wall, and then they kind of all scattered back out. And now Jerusalem isn't shining as a light on a hill, so to speak. It's vacant. And so what Nehemiah does is by casting lots, he goes to all of these surrounding cities, and he says one out of every ten needs to come and live in Jerusalem. So that Jerusalem can be this city center hub, and it can be a... a, a proclamation to the nations around that God is at work. And so that's what happens. And the list that you have are those in chapter 11 of those who resettled in Jerusalem and those who settled in other cities. And it's just a bunch of names to show that these are real people. <laughs> this isn't a story that's made up. Now chapter 12 is also a list, a list of the Levites and the priests who are also part of this resettlement program to make sure that the God of Israel was being seen and heralded and worshipped and praised. And so, Nehemiah's aim, if you remember all the way back to chapter 1, he saw the great trouble and the shame of the people of Israel. All the way back in chapter 1, his aim was to relieve that shame and to rebuild the city. And he had accomplished what he set out to do. So that's why it makes sense that in Nehemiah chapter 12, the verse we just read at the beginning... Verse 27, that there was a dedication of the wall in Jerusalem. He had accomplished what he set out to do. And so now they're going to have this big, massive party and celebration to say the people of God have come to the city of God to be on the mission of God for the glory of God. And so we're going to dedicate this wall. And so, as I've already read in verse 27, 
And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate with dedication, with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, cymbals, harps, and lyres. The broken down wall was a symbol of disgrace. Now the rebuilt wall is a symbol of God's glory and his love for his people. Now look at Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 30. And it says, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And what happened is they formed two massive choirs. And one choir goes to the north end of the city, and one goes to the south end of the city, and they just start singing. And I cannot imagine what that would have sounded like. But as they sung, sacrifices were being offered, and it was just this time of great joy. And that's where we read in verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. The praise served as a spotlight to the greatness of God. And now we read in Nehemiah 13, verses 1 to 3, that they pull out the Word of God and they analyze their life to the Word of God. Remember what they said in chapter 10. We will do all that the Word has said. We will do all that the Word has said. So now they start reading. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found as they were reading through. They were in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23. And as they're reading through, they found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Why? Verse 2. Because they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against Israel to curse them. And yet what did God do with these opponents of Israel? He turned their curse into a blessing, it says. And verse 3 says, as soon as the people heard this law, they separated themselves from all those of foreign descent. Now, just as a qualification, as we shared last time, this was not an ethnic separation as it was primarily a religious separation. It had ethnic components to it, but this was about a people. Why separate? Because these people were against God. And they, these people were for God, and they needed to shine as a light on a hill. And so they were intermarrying, and they were not showing how they were keeping God's law, shining as a light on the hill. But here we have in, in Nehemiah 13, they're obeying the word of God. They're doing what the word says. And now we know, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 6, is Nehemiah has to go back to Jerusalem. We don't know when he goes back. We don't know how long he goes back. But he goes back to Jerusalem because he had promised King Artaxerxes that he would do so. Now, if I'm reading a book and I get to the end of the book, this is where I would end the book. Right? The people are doing what they're supposed to do. There's celebration. It's like you're watching the movie and then the hero gets on the horse and rides off into the sunset or gets in the car and rides off and it's just like... Boom! It happened! All that he set out to do was accomplished. The leader rides off into the sunset. Let's end the book here. But the book doesn't end here. Why? If I'm writing a book, I'm going to write it with that ending. Why? Why doesn't it end with the hero is in the sunset and the people live happily ever after? It's not the end. It's not a fairy tale. 
Nehemiah is a great leader, but he's not a savior. And the people of Israel don't live happily ever after because they live for themselves. I haven't seen it, but the TV show Lost. I had a ton of friends watch the TV show Lost, and I'll never forget epic two-plus-hour finale. I didn't watch it. My friends were stoked for it. They were lost watch parties. They were gathering to watch this. And as they watched it, I asked the next day, how was the finale to Lost? And everyone that I talked to was massively disappointed. It was like, worst ending ever, you know, hoping that there would be resolution to all of these clips, and it just didn't happen. And so I've never watched Lost because everybody told me the ending was horrible. And it's like, this is sometimes how we will treat the Bible. It's like, man, that ending is horrible. I'm not going to keep going. Why would I do that? Well, I have been told, by the way, that the first few seasons are worth watching even though the ending is bad. So anyway, as we look at the scriptures, what you have is an ending that is bad, but the series isn't over. The ending actually points to a delayed yet glorious conclusion. So the ending is bad to Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah as a book. But it's a part of a series. It's a part of the whole Testament. It's a part of this entire book we call the scriptures. And there is a delayed yet glorious conclusion. So what we see, Nehemiah, he's left Jerusalem. And when he returns, here's how Nehemiah really ends. It doesn't end with happily ever after and fanfare. Nehemiah comes back from time away, and here's what we hear. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. And when he came to Jerusalem, it says, this is actually in first person. He says, and I came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. Now, this might not mean much to you, but Tobiah was an Ammonite. The very people that the law had prohibited for them to be partnering with. And what did Eliashib do, who is a relative? He actually gave him residence in the temple. So Nehemiah leaves, and they're obeying the law. He comes back, and the very law they were obeying is now being flipped upside down, being disregarded. The opponents of God were not being treated as the opponents of God or the opponents to Nehemiah. They were being welcomed. And so Nehemiah says in verse 8, And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. He has held no place here. And then what we see was there was a tithe commanded in the Old Testament law. And they were supposed to give that tithe as a way to support the Levites and the priests and ultimately to support the work of the temple, the house of God. Nehemiah comes back. They weren't giving the tithes. They were keeping the money to themselves so that the Levites, the clergy, they had to leave to try to figure out how to make ends meet. And the temple was being compromised. It says, why has the house of God been forsaken in verse 11 of chapter 13? There was financial compromise. There was greed or laziness or selfishness. And what did Nehemiah do in response? He says, you must obey God's word. He demanded that these 
gifts be given, these tithes be given, and people were set up to honorably handle it. And then there was another law, he observed, the law of keeping the Sabbath. And they were blowing right through it. The Sabbath was set aside one 24-hour day for the worship of God. And to do it in such a way that you are saying with your life, God is my provider and I am not. They were not supposed to work on that day and they were supposed to set this aside. And instead, it was like a free-for-all market for them. People were camping outside the gates of Jerusalem just waiting for the gates to open up so that then they could have all of this time of trade. They were blowing through the Sabbath. And Nehemiah told them, that this is not going to happen. He starts closing the gates to Jerusalem, and when the people are camping outside, he actually goes out and says, you better leave, because no trading is going to happen here. These people are going to keep the law of God. And finally, what else he saw was that they were intermarrying with people who did not fear the Lord. They were not following God's ways. So the ending of Nehemiah, seeking to set everything right, asking God to remember him favorably, but what we see is that the people of God were not surrendered wholly to God. They were surrendered to themselves. And Nehemiah says, after trying to set everything right, please remember me, I'm trying to do what is right, but what do we see? Not even the rightness of Nehemiah could change the people's heart. Not even the law of Moses could change the people's heart. And guess what? The book ends. It's over. I'm glad to bring good news of great joy. The people are a train wreck. And no leader could fix them. So what do we do with this, friends? What do we do? We, as a people rescued by Jesus, made his own. What do we do when we read the Bible? When we read our Old Testament, what are we supposed to do? With this, Well, I want to assure you, we are supposed to read our Old Testament and enjoy all of God's Word. And we read it because, number one, it serves us with examples on how to live. I don't have enough time to go there, but if you want to get one clear example, Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 13, that the Old Testament is meant to show us examples on how to live. It is not meant to be discarded. It is meant to be read. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 13. So when we read Nehemiah, it serves us with an example on how to live. What does that mean? It shows us there are warnings. Warnings. That we as a people, when time is on our side, when ease seems to be working for us, we can actually be falling into spiritual sleep. We can become relaxed spiritually. And rather than standing in judgment of Israel, we are meant to say, that could be us apart from grace. It's an example on how to live. Both that God takes obedience seriously... And that we must take God's word seriously. It paints a picture that we should not become relaxed. Now, I looked up on the internet, what are the most dangerous jobs in America? Number one at the list, there's two of them. The logging industry and building cell towers. The most dangerous jobs in America. 
Why would those be the most dangerous? Well, one cell tower, 600 some odd feet in the air. That's enough said, right? Logging industry, saws bigger than my body. You know, you're just ramming, ramming wood through. Okay, enough said. But why does it lead to death? Why is it dangerous? At least one part of the answer is that they got so comfortable knowing how to do their job that they became relaxed to the safety protocols, to everything that they needed to hook the harness to make sure all the equipment was right. And so it ended up leading to their destruction, to their death. Nehemiah warns us as a people. He warns us as we read it that we must not be a people who relax spiritually. But we must be a people characterized by praise. The other reason that we read the Old Testament is not only because it gives us examples, but it also gives us promises. We are meant to read our Old Testament because it contains promises for us. Think about one of the most famous verses in Nehemiah. It says, the joy of the Lord is their strength. The joy of the Lord is their strength. Now you should ask, is that only for the people of Israel? Because that's who it's said to. Now, when I read that, how do I, is that for me or not? The promise was made to the people of Israel. What am I to do with this? And so, although the promises in the Old Testament are made directly to Israel, I borrow a phrase from Pastor John Piper when he says, these promises are not less than literal, they're more than literal. Meaning, they are to Jewish ethnic Jews who believe, but they're more than that. They're to anyone who trusts in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God be the glory. All the promises that you read in the Old Testament... When you read Isaiah 43 and it says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And the waves, they shall not overtake you. Do not fear. I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Yes, he is the Holy One of Israel. And any ethnic Jew that trusts in him, that is their promise. But any of us, when he goes on to say, I am with you because you are precious. And you are honored. And I love you. Because we are in Christ, every one of those promises are ours in Christ Jesus. And we can take those as a comfort, as an encouragement. It's the same God, the same steadfast love, the same grace needed for forgiveness, the same great need for a Savior. These promises are ours. But now we come to the real elephant in the room, the real question are the laws that were given to Israel, tithing, Sabbath, all these other laws that were given, 613 plus recorded in the scriptures, are these laws given to Israel for us today? Well, they are meant to be read in their context. They are meant to be read in light of the whole, but they are meant to cultivate wisdom. As you read your Old Testament, this is another reason you read it, is it makes you a wise person. You understand God. You understand His ways. It makes you wise. And as I said last week, just because 
I think the biblical witness says these laws are not for us. The Old Testament as a book is for us. So the laws given to Israel are not meant to be read as laws for us. One of the primary texts that I think tells us this is Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. It says this, Now faith, now before faith came, so now you see faith is personified. It, it's a person. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, now that Jesus has shown up on the scene, we are no longer under a guardian. That means we are no longer under the Mosaic law as law for us. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Why did he say that? Because it's not just the sons of Abraham. We are all sons of God by faith. And actually, we are all sons of Abraham by faith. And so the law is a tutor. It's a teacher to get the people until Jesus came. And once Jesus was on the scene, he fulfills all of the law. He's the one everything is pointing to. Why the law came was to put name on sin, to help us understand the danger of sin and our need for Jesus. So we're no longer under the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses. But we read these laws in the book of the law in the Old Testament in order to develop wisdom. That we get a sense of God's character, God's desires. And then the New Testament begins to color that in and, and live in color in 3 and 4D. But let's just look at this. So how in the world do we read these commands about giving as wisdom? What does that look like? What does that mean? Because, you know, when you're reading Nehemiah, it says one of the things they broke was they were supposed to give a tithe. And they didn't give the tithe. So Nehemiah comes in and says, you got to do this. Now, how am I supposed to read this? Am I supposed to be giving a tithe? Well, contributions in the book of Exodus chapter 25 were supposed to be given to maintain the sanctuary in the temple. Exodus chapter 30. A shekel was supposed to be taken from every single person so that it cost everybody something to be a part of supporting the work of God. However, these were laws given to the people of Israel. Given under the Mosaic law. These laws, as we have just heard, these specific laws are not for us today. That's why I don't believe there's a mandatory tithe that is required of the people of God, but I believe in grace giving. What does that mean? Meaning no exact amount or no percentage required. However, he doesn't mean you can then not give. Isn't it sad that I have to even say that? If you do some giving statistics, I think the people of America, they give 2% of their income. They give away 2% of their income to charitable sources. And the sad statistic is Christians are no different than non-Christians. But the New Testament tells us giving is an essential part of walking with Jesus. Not for justification, but for sanctification. Not to be accepted by God, 
but in order to be obedient. The tithe was given as a command to Israel. We're no longer under the Mosaic law. Similar to giving a tithe, although it is not commanded, we're supposed to read it as wisdom. Read it as a principle. We must give regularly, sacrificially, because God loves a cheerful giver. And when you read the Old Testament, it makes you wise. And filled with the Holy Spirit, hear this, we stop asking, what's the least I can do to keep most of my money for us and still meet God's requirement for giving? This is how sadly we treat the reading of God's Word. What's the least amount I can do to get away with whatever, to keep it for myself? It's a total misunderstanding of how God paints our finances. God paints our finances as unto the Lord. It's His. And we're a steward of what's His. It's not ours. I tell you, some of the most poisonous words when it comes to our possessions are my and mine. That's not your chair. It's not your grass. This is not our building. This is ultimately God's. And I know we can talk that way in some senses, but we got to be very careful. Everything is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24. And sadly, we read these things and we read it as wisdom and our wisdom is what's the least we can do to get away with it. I think this is not how the scriptures would call us. No, we continually lay our money and what we come, what comes into us at Jesus' feet, and we give generously, regularly, and sacrificially. And as I said last week, probably the 10% was a floor, not a ceiling. When it came to the Old Testament, and probably what Jesus is calling for in the world. Now, similarly, we come to the Sabbath. We come to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It was how they showed that they were underneath the law of God. They observed the Sabbath. It was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So, if it was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, it means, in some senses... We are no longer under the Sabbath as a command given to Israel. Here's what I mean by that. Well, when did they worship? What was their Sabbath? It was what day? Saturday. Thank you. Somebody yelled it out, and I was thankful. It was a young one, too. I like that. It was a Saturday. Okay? It was also supposed to gather in the tabernacle or the temple or a synagogue. There was also supposed to be no sexual relations on the Sabbath. There was supposed to be no gathering of food. Sacrifices were permissible. They were supposed to celebrate Israel's deliverance from Egypt on the Sabbath. There were supposed to be weeks of Sabbath, and there was also supposed to be the year of Jubilee. And the kicker, if you break any of these, the consequence is death. Okay. Now, are we supposed to observe the Sabbath as given to Israel? The answer is no. It was connected to the Mosaic Law, and we are no longer under the Mosaic Law given to Moses. As the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Hear the language. Whoever has entered, past tense, God's rest has also rested from works as God did from his. What does this mean? He goes on in verse 11. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. The Old Testament Sabbath was to point us to a rest that was far beyond just a physical rest, but it was an eternal rest. It was a rest in Christ. But, he says, it's something that we have entered into, but something that we also have to strive to enter into. This is so confusing. I can feel it for you. It's called the already not yet. Are you saved if you've trusted in Jesus? Yes. Is your salvation full and complete? Not until you see Jesus face to face in all of his glory. Sabbath is the same way. It was a pointer. That we're supposed to find our rest in Christ. An eternal rest is what we have in Jesus. But then there's this other aspect to it where we are daily striving to enter into that rest. Now this is probably why the early church did not abandon setting aside a day of worship. A day dedicated as unto the Lord. So they had the Lord's Day. It shifted from Saturday to Sunday because what happened on Sunday? That's right. Jesus got up. He didn't stay dead. Celebration of celebrations. The resurrection happened and it changed everything. And it was the Lord's Day. This is probably not only why they worship corporately, but also, also why, uh, although Colossians gives us freedom, it says all days are equal. Meaning that the Jewish Sabbath is not a binding law on us. There was still some aspect that the Sabbath was a part of the Christian's life. So, let's review. Sabbath, not a law to obey. Here's what I want to say. But a principle to implement. Not a law to obey, but a principle to implement. It's a discipline for spiritual health. What are the principles of the Sabbath? It's physical and spiritual rest. These are the principles, and it is meant to be a weekly rhythm, a discipline to honor those principles with our very lives. So I say, don't relax spiritually, but rest in Christ. Rest in Him. Now, although there's a lot that has changed about the Jewish Sabbath, there's a lot that hasn't changed about our need for it, namely this. The Sabbath was not only connected to the Mosaic Law, it was connected to creation. Right? It was connected to creation. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this. I was reading an article uh, by John Piper on this. He said this. The week exists. Have you ever thought about that? The week exists. Okay, a day exists because the sun goes up and comes down. Right? Okay, a month exists because of the moon and how it rotates. A year exists because of our earth traveling around the sun. All of these are physical reasons that we have days, months, and years. Why do we have a week? There's nothing connected to nature that says we should have a week. Why do we have a week? Because in six days God created it on the seventh, he rested. That's why you have a week. 
God has implemented the week so that we would both work and we would rest. This is God's design. And there's something else that hasn't changed is that we are still creatures. We have a creatureliness. There's something shocking about God that's different than us. Like, we have to sleep, he does not. We have limits, he does not. And what that observing a one day is meant to be for us is a discipline to say, I have limits, my God does not. I am not a provider of my income, ultimately, my God is. And so I stop working in order to say that both, not just with my mouth, but with my physical life. He is my provider. I have limits, God does not. My sustenance depends on God, and it doesn't ultimately depend on me. And what this is meant to do is it's meant to be a physical picture of a spiritual reality in our lives that the anxiety just rolls off of our shoulders into the arms of Jesus. It's a time for love for others. And most importantly, spiritually, it's meant to be a day where we say, Physically and spiritually, I am not saved by my works, but Christ's. And each day of this upcoming week, I want to enter into his eternal rest day after day. You want to tell you something ironic? I'm preparing for this message on Sabbath rest, and I was anxious. It's like, I'm missing the point. I was missing the point. And I had to stop, and I read Psalm 37. And it was in Psalm 37 where he says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. The word commit is literally the same word used to roll a stone away. It is to roll all of those anxieties onto the Lord. To trust him and to trust that he will act for you. This is the essence of the Sabbath. That one day you're going to say, oh God, I spiritually am longing for that eternal rest. And I long for you to make that my heart day after day after day. It's when that eternal rest breaks into the hearing now. And so friends, that's why Jesus says, man was not made for the Sabbath. It was not a law to obey. The Sabbath was made for man because we are limited. We need these safeguards. So we read the Old Testament, friends. Not as law for us, but as wisdom. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these laws. Everything that we read is meant to point to Jesus. So, we just finished the book of Nehemiah. And as you look at it, it ends with the people of God rebelling against God. I don't have to convince you that that's you and I. That's you and I. Oh, sinner, you and I are wretched. We commit with all of our might sin, and we fall short of God's standards. I don't need to convince you of your guilt. Your heart bears witness to this. You get angry when someone doesn't do what you want them to do. You have fear, and you fail to trust God with your future, or with your present, or with your money, or your kids, or your marriage, or your very life. We have lust. We lust for what other people have that we don't have. Lust for relationships, lust for money, lust for possessions. I want their life. And then jealousy begins to boil up. It makes you feel angry at them 
or just really sad that you don't have what they have. Oh, and then we get thankless. We aren't as thankful as we should be, and our complaining exposes that. And as I speak, you know it. This isn't just for some. This is for all of us. I'm not as aware of the grace of God as I am the difficulties of life or the problems with people around me. It's sin. You and I are driven to put ourselves before others. Even when we are great servants, there comes a point when we consider ourselves better than somebody else. Not to mention the fact that we get shackled with shame and we drop our head and we get embarrassed. We fail when we're not timely or we forget something we said we would do. Or we spend money crazily and all of a sudden now we have to live with the consequences of not being faithful with our finances. Friends, I could talk forever. Friends, I don't need to convince you that you are shackled by sin and you and I are desperately sin sick. The book of Nehemiah is underscoring it, exclamation pointing it. Nehemiah is not the Savior, and you and I are not lovely in and of ourselves. We're only lovely connected to our God. You're valuable because you are made in God's image. And you and I, as sin-sick as we are, we realize the law cannot change our heart. And we need Jesus. Our hope is not a good leader. If so, Nehemiah would have fixed the problem. It's not a list of rules. If so, the law would have done it. It's not constant shaming. It's something only God can do. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is pointing to a Savior. The whole book ends as a cliffhanger of tragedy with a train wreck ending because it is meant to point you beyond yourself, beyond your abilities, to Jesus, who is your only hope. One pastor said, our greatest longing is to be known. And yet our greatest fear is that when we are known, we will not be loved. Our greatest longing is to be known in the depths of our heart, but our greatest fear is that if somebody really knows us, they won't love us. I'm here to tell you good news. You are known fully. You are known better than you even know yourself, and every tragedy that I just walked through is known by God, and yet He loves you. And He came, not staying far away, but He drew near, and He died a death that you and I deserve, and He loved you so much that He took all of the sin that you and I deserve, and it was nailed to His shoulders on the cross, and He has now been raised from the dead so that you have hope, and you can know I can be known and still be loved. And then it changes everything because now you can love others even as you know their mess because you know that you've been known and you are loved. The book of Nehemiah points us to the greatest gift in all the world. His name is Jesus Christ. And so friends, this is a new beginning together. A new beginning where we are confident in God's precious word. And together, we link arms to be on his mission of love for the glory of his name because we admit we're sinners and we have a precious Savior. So together, 
Let's run after Jesus and let's live for his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. And I just pray that we would be a people who read it over and over and over and over and over again. That we might become wise and we might know your son. Father, reveal Jesus to us. Reveal his beauty to us day by day. Help us to be honest and humble about our struggles, about our fears, about our pains. And help us to bring them all to the foot of the cross to find rest for our souls. Protect us from relaxing. Protect us from growing spiritually complacent. And may it affect every part of our lives, whether it be our money or our time, our marriage or sexuality. God, may it affect every part of our life, that nothing is off limits. Father, I pray that we would be a people who take seriously setting aside a day in our lives each week to say, you are our provision. You are our king. Not myself, not my company, but you. And that ultimately, every single day would be a day pursuing rest in Christ and longing for that Sabbath rest that we will experience when we see Jesus face to face. Father, we pray. We pray that you would make us humble to follow your word, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and most importantly, treasure Christ in the Lord. Let's just take just a few minutes to reflect on what God might be teaching each one of us, and then we will sing a song, worship and praise to our great God.